0: We are going to get started here. It's a different teacher this morning, but it's the same class. We're doing systematic theology. And this morning, we're starting on, well, we're going to cover the topic of the Trinity. And the goal this morning is to build a biblical foundation for the Trinity. How do we prove the Trinity from Scripture? We've heard a lot about how the history of the church has done it. Well, you may have heard a lot of that, but this morning, I want to equip you with enough that you can go and make an argument from Scripture for the Trinity. All of these slides are online under my Attributes of God class. I didn't change any of the slides, so if you want to go find it, it's the Trinity Part 1. There's a second class if you want a historical look at the Trinity, it's the Trinity Part 2. But we don't have time to do all that this morning. So let's look at a biblical foundation of the Trinity and see how we prove the Trinity is true, because you may have had some people show up at your front door and tell you there's no such thing as the Trinity. And it's not in the Bible. Sorry, that's not true. Let's first define what we mean by the Trinity. Wayne Grudem gives a good definition. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. Notice there is one God, and there are three persons. That one God is existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If there's anything where we hear the most... Difficult language, it's here. When people come in for their new member interviews, this is where they mess up the most, is they don't use the right terminology for the Trinity. And when you talk about the Trinity, you have some special issues. Most areas of theology you can discuss, and you can use just about any language you want, and you won't mess up and run off into heresy. But the problem is, when you talk about the Trinity, if you use imprecise language, it brings confusion and error. You have to be very particular on how you speak about the Trinity. How you define the terms matters. What terms you use and the definitions that you apply matter. Because if you change the terms or if you change the definitions, you actually don't have just a difference of opinion. It's not a matter of my personal opinion. I would prefer this word over that word. You actually have a different religion. You have a different religion because when you change the terms and you change the definitions you actually describe a different God. And this is where most people, when they're talking to someone at the front door, they have you know, two people show up at the front door to try to evangelize them to another religion. This is where most people get messed up, is that the terms are confused. And there's imprecise language, and so they end up just talking past each other. Dr. James White explains it this way. The single greatest reason people struggle with the doctrine of the Trinity is miscommunication. It is very rare that anyone actually argues or debates about the real doctrine of the Trinity. Most arguments that take place at the door or over coffee involve two or more people fighting vigorously over two or more misrepresentations of the doctrine itself. They just don't understand the terms, and so they argue back and forth, and they use imprecise language, and instead of bringing clarity, it only brings more confusion. And part of that confusion is the result of our human language— Human language has a lot of limitations. There's a lot of things human language cannot describe, especially when we talk about God. One of those limitations is that language has baggage. Your language has baggage. That is to say, words have meanings. Think of in our modern culture, when we say God is love, what does the world think we mean? He just loves everybody. How else does the world define love? Tolerance. I should be able to marry anybody I want, because this is love, and God wants us to be loving. Now, you take that baggage of all the languages you have. Every word that you know has baggage to it. It has a defined meaning. When we talk about persons, that has baggage. You have an understanding of what a person is. And usually your understanding of a person is someone who is separate, distinct, autonomous with their own personality, and they only have one existence, and that existence is not shared with anybody. But if you apply that definition to the persons of the Trinity, you get confused, and it doesn't make sense. Oftentimes we carry meanings and definitions into our doctrine of the Trinity that are not found in Scripture, and they're completely divorced from what the Bible says. Those words bring up images in our minds And those images and those thoughts do not correspond with what the Bible says about God. And the reality is, human language does not properly explain God. Even the terms that we use to explain the Trinity are not perfect. Person probably isn't the best word to use, but it's really one of the only words we have to use for the three persons of the Trinity. And that's because the God of Scripture is completely unique. He is unlike anything in creation. And so human language has a really hard time trying to explain something that humans just cannot really conceive of. And when we don't have the words to use, and we don't know how to explain it, you know what we do? We try to use word pictures. We try to use analogies. Because I don't have a clear way to say it, so let me relate the Trinity to something in the world. And we try to explain the Trinity using analogy, relating the Trinity to something in creation. Here's the problem. Nothing in creation is like the Trinity. There is no good analogy. Analogies for the Trinity are dangerous. They're dangerous because at some point, every analogy is going to break down. It's going to fall apart on you. And the result is that you're going to misrepresent or distort the doctrine of the Trinity, or and or, you're going to end up teaching heresy. Let me give you an example. The Trinity is like water, ice, and water vapor. How many of you have heard that before? Okay, I'm not going to ask you how many of you used that before. To understand the problem with this, you need to understand how these three relate to one another. What do these all have in common? It's all water. It's all H2O. So it's the same substance. It's the same substance in three different forms solid, liquid, and gas. Now, if you were to take this and apply it to the Trinity, there are some aspects of this that work, i.e. it's one substance. But the problem is, this says that the Father, Son, and Spirit are the same substance, which is correct, but that the substance appears in three different forms. This is the heresy of modalism. Think of it this way. I'm one person, Today I'm dressed up like a preacher. Next week I'm going to come back, I'm going to be a firefighter. The next week I'm going to come back, I'm going to look like a baker. Modalism. It's all one person, just three different manifestations. This is alive and well today. Anybody know a modalist? T.D. Jakes. Here's his website. There is one God, creator of all things, infinitely perfect and eternally existing in three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where do we have a problem with this? Manifestations. Those are not manifestations of the same person. Those are three different persons. Here's another example. The Trinity is like an apple. One apple, three parts. Skin, meat, and core. Okay, what's the relationship between these three? Skin, meat, and core. They're parts. They're parts of the same apple. So you have one apple, three parts. Does that describe the Trinity? No. This analogy teaches that there is one God... With three parts. What doctrine, what attribute of God does this deny? The simplicity of God. Now this is where some people say, okay, great. I'm not allowed to use analogies. But you don't understand. I teach the children. I've got to have some pictures for this. There's got to be a way that I can use a word picture to help them understand this. Fine. If you must use the analogy. Use the analogy to teach what the Trinity is not. That's called negative theology, and you remove the the wrong options, and what's left over is, hopefully if you've explained it, is the truth, right? Now, when we talk about the Trinity, we also have to realize that we use terminology that is not found in the Bible, like the word Trinity. This was first coined by a guy named Tertullian, and I don't know, have you had people come to you and say, well, the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, That's true. It's not found in the Bible, but the term is not a problem because all we're doing by saying the word Trinity is we're just summarizing the doctrine taught in Scripture. We're summarizing it with one simple little word. Then people say, well, show me a verse. Give me one verse that gives me the Trinity. What are they looking for? They're looking for a proof text. And they want to prove the Trinity with one single verse. The problem is, there is not one single verse to prove the Trinity. The Trinity, the doctrine, is the result of progressive revelation. So you start in the book of Genesis, and you work your way forward, and through the Old Testament, you find indications of the Trinity. And by the time you get to the New Testament, you have the fullest revelation of the Trinity, and that's where most of the details of the Trinity are going to be given. Does that make sense? So this morning, my goal is not to proof-text this. My goal is to give you a picture of what the Bible says about the Trinity. And to do that, we need to start in one place. And that is, there is only one God. No matter what else we say this morning, we are not denying there is only one God. And that's the foundation where you have to begin with everybody. When the Mormon shows up, you have to start with, there is only one God. Deuteronomy 4 verse 35, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, he is God, and there is no other besides him. How many gods are there? Just one. 1 Kings 8 verse 60, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no one else. Isaiah 45, 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me, there is No God. And Isaiah 45 actually has several of these statements throughout. So if you just want to take the Mormon to Isaiah 45, you'll get plenty of references that say there's only one God. And that one God is a unity. He's not divided up. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You know, in English, when we talk about the number one, there's only one word you can use for it one. In Hebrew, there's actually two different words you can use for the number one. This one isn't talking about just one clicker. It's talking about a plural unity. Give you an example. This church is made up of a lot of people, but this church is one. Plural unity. God is a plural unity. Now, does that prove the Trinity? just an indication you can't build a whole bunch of theology off one word just an indication you can also see this idea of god being a plural unity in just the name elohim that noun is plural and this plural noun is used with singular verbs like this in the beginning elohim god created the heavens and the earth elohim is plural but the noun bara or created is singular In the beginning, Elohim, He created the heavens and the earth. You have a plural with a singular. Does everyone follow me on that? Okay. That's not the only place that God is referred to in the plural. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 1. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. The phrase your creator is a plural participle. Participles often translated the one who created, but this is plural. The ones who created. Isaiah 54, 5. Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all truth. This also is a plural participle. The ones who made. Not only does the Old Testament refer to God with plural and plural nouns and participles, it also reuses plural pronouns and adjectives to describe God. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Notice, let us. That's a plural first-person pronoun. And we are to make man how? In our image. Our is a plural pronoun, and image is a singular. A couple of people who have one image. And I say a couple because it's plural. It doesn't tell us how many. So you have a group of people with one single image. And we are going to make them how? According to our likeness. Again, you have that plural pronoun, our, and likeness. One single likeness referring to that group. Does that make sense? Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Genesis 11, verse 7. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they will not understand one another's speech. And if you look back, this is actually, verse 6 says this is Yahweh speaking. And Yahweh refers to himself as us. Isaiah 6, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Notice the transition he makes here. Whom shall I send, singular? And who will go for us, plural? But it's the same God speaking. Isaiah 45, verse 6. We have something different. We have God speaking of someone else as God. Isaiah 45. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Notice this phrase, God, your God, has anointed you. Now, how many gods are there? Just one. Okay, but for the sake of illustration, take the first reference to God. We'll say that's God A. And the reference, your God, that's God B. God A, your God, God B... Has anointed you. That's not talking about the same person. You don't anoint yourself. Hosea 1, verse 7. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God, and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. And once again, you have this singular pronoun, I will. And what will I do? I will deliver them. How is he going to deliver them? By the Lord their God. He could have just said, but I will deliver them, and I will not deliver them by bow sword. This is talking about two persons. Both of them are described as being God. How many gods are there? Just one. This is carried on in the New Testament, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have three names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But when he says baptize them in the name, singular, three people referred to, one single name. Leon Morris talked about this verse. He said this, we should notice that the word name is singular. Jesus does not say that his followers should baptize in the names of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but in the name of these three. It points to the fact that they are in some sense one. How are they one? How are these three one? William Hendrickson, someone said it. The baptizing must be into the name. Note the singular one name, hence one God. They are united in essence. The Father, Son, and Spirit are also represented in Matthew chapter 3 at the baptism of Jesus. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice of the heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, this is where a modalist who says it's all the same person in a different form has a lot of problems. Because you have the Father who's in heaven, you have Jesus who's in the water, and you have the Spirit who's descending like a dove, not as a dove, but like a dove. How is that all the same person? And he's talking They're talking to one another. The Father is speaking to Jesus. That's not the Father speaking to himself. You have three persons mentioned here. Paul also takes these three persons and relates them together. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, I need a volunteer. You don't have to come up here or anything. You need a volunteer. Let's say I did this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of David and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Anybody have a problem with that? Other than changing scripture, I understand that. I know you're changing the Bible. Other than that, anyone have a problem with that? David's not God. If I stick David's name in that, what I've just done is I've just equated David to God. Is that okay? And I put put anyone else's name in there, and you're not okay with it. What you're recognizing is what he's done is he's put those three names together and he's equated all of them as being the same. All three of these are God. And if you put anyone else's name in there, you've essentially stepped into blasphemy. But here again, you find three persons in unity. Jude does the same thing, Jude 20. But you, beloved building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Once again, the word God here refers to the Father, and you are to pray in the Holy Spirit, and you are to be waiting anxiously for Jesus Christ to bring eternal life. By putting them together, he unites the three. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, The Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. Notice there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. When He says, from whom are all things, what is He ascribing to the Father? What is He saying the Father did? Created. This is a claim that the Father is the creator, and if He is the creator, He must be God look at the end jesus christ by whom are all things and we exist through him what is that saying jesus did created and so you have two people here both being given the work of god if they're both the creator then they both must be god how many gods do we have just one any questions so far yeah, I think the more biblical way to look at it would be to say that God the Father is working through his Son, right? And if you look here, from whom, notice the proposition from, and then when you get to Jesus, by whom. Jesus is the instrument used to do the creation. The reason you're struggling is because, remember at the beginning we talked about baggage, and we talked about how words have meanings. When we think of person, the only way we can conceptualize person is by looking around, And the idea that two persons have the same being, being describes your existence and your experience of existence. And for us, we don't share the same existence. Mason and I both are persons. We both have being. We both exist. And we both have an existence, but I don't share Mason's existence. And so for us, two persons having the same essence or having the same being is hard to fathom the Bible doesn't refer to them as being like you in every way, right? And so we have to have our, our definition of person adjusted a little bit here. And the word person actually is really hard to apply here. Theologians actually like to use a word called subsistence to try to avoid that baggage. But So the three persons share the same essence. Essence would refer to the divine nature, right? And that, that's the divine existence that they all share. Each one, Father, Son, and Spirit, is a person, distinct. And they are co-equal, co-eternal, and they are all three fully, truly God. And so, yes, the, the terms can get confusing because we bring in those definitions with it. So that's a really good point. Any other questions? Okay, so how many gods are there? One. Now, that's where you start any conversation you're talking to someone. Start right there. There is one God. Have one or two of these verses that you know, Preferably something like Deuteronomy 6 4, something that's very simple. Now you have to prove that the three persons are all God. That the Bible describes the three persons as God. And so that's what we're going to do for the remainder of the time. We're going to look at what the Bible says about each person of the Trinity and prove that the Bible says they are God. Okay? So let's start with the Father is God. The Father is God. The Bible directly relates the Father to being God. That is, the Bible says that he is God. Ephesians 4, verse 6, One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One God and Father. There he's clearly described as being God. Romans 15, 6, So that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father here is again called God. John 6, verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Usually, when you just see a reference just to God in the New Testament, it's going to be referring to the Father. James 1, verse 5. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Usually, that reference, just a blank blank reference to God is going to refer to the Father. So the Father in the New Testament is described as God, and New Testament writers also attribute to the Father divine attributes. John 17 verse 11, I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. What divine attribute is he ascribing to God? holiness. He's also said to be righteous. Uh, John 17, verse 25, a righteous father. Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. He's described as being righteous. He's also said to be merciful. Second uh, Corinthians 1, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, the Father who is and who gives mercy that all mercy comes from him. He's also described as being omnipresent. Matthew 6, verse 4, so that your giving will be done in secret and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. How can you do it in secret and he still know and see that you did it? Because while you are in secret to other people, he's there. He's omnipresent. He sees it all. Matthew 6, verse 6, But when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Are you seeing the omnipresence here? Now, if the Father sees everything, there's another implication. If he sees everything, that means he knows everything. So you could also draw omniscience from that, but that's a theological conclusion. The Father is given the attributes of God. He's also given the rights and the prerogatives of God. He's treated like God, and he expects to be treated like God. Uh, John 4, verse 23. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. The Father seeks for you to worship him, and he wants you to worship him. In Mark 2, verses 6 and 7, we're not going to look at it, but it says that the Father is the one who forgives sin. And you've probably seen that a lot, but forgiveness of sin is something only that God can do. The Father forgives. Matthew 6, verse 14, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And even when Jesus went and tried to, even when Jesus said, Your sins are forgiven, the Pharisees responded, Wait, only God can forgive sins. Who is this guy? The Father is said to be the one who forgives sins. And the Father also gives commands. If he's God, it would make sense he gives commands. John 14, verse 31, But so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. Even if you take the Muslim position that Jesus is just a prophet, a man who speaks for God, who else would command him other than God? The Father exercises the rights of God. He also performs the works that God performs. Mark 13, verse 19, For those days will be a, for those days will be a time of tribulation such, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. The Father is described as being the Creator. Corinthians 8, 6, we've looked at this one, so I'll, I'll make it quick. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things, and we exist for him. Again, the Father's the creator. Acts 2.23, Acts uh, 2.32, both say that God resurrects people. You can also see that in Romans 6, verse 4. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism and death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Who raised Christ from the dead? The Father. That's a work only God can do. God is also the one who will execute judgment on the world. Romans 2, 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And you can see that same idea in Matthew 15, verse 13. And he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. That is a picture of judgment. So the Father is described as being God. He's given the attributes of God. He does the work of God. And he exercises the rights and prerogatives of God. Are we going to say that he's anything other than God? I'm not making this up, am I? Okay, good. Let's do the Son. The Son is God. This is the one you're going to have a lot of debate on. When someone shows up at your door, this is where the debate will be. Is Jesus God? Well, Jesus is described as God. John 1, verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. And we'll see in a few minutes that calling him the Son of God is equal to calling him God. The Father refers to him in the same way, Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. To call him the Son of God or God's Son is to say that he is God. The angels, same thing, Luke 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Lord here is a Greek word, kurios. Kurios was used throughout the Old Testament. When they translated the Old Testament into Greek, kurios is what they used to translate the name Yahweh. The disciples Affirm that Jesus is God. Now, how many have you spoken to any Jehovah's Witnesses before? Okay, the next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, give them the gospel first, and then ask them to get out their New World Translation and have them read from their New World Translation this verse, John 20, 28. Thomas answered and said to him, said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. The New World Translation gets it right. They translate it that way. And then just ask the Jehovah's Witness, would Michael the archangel accept that? Would any angel accept that other than demons? No. If this was not true, Jesus should have rebuked him for saying it. And yet Jesus doesn't rebuke him. He accepts the title. I would just ask him, do you express it that way? Do you ever go to someone and say, my Lord and my God? I don't. I would say that would be close to blasphemy. That's how I would respond to that. It's like, really, that's the way you talk to people? And the people you talk to are okay with you saying that to them? I I don't know anyone who would say that. No, yeah, and if he was just a prophet or just a good man, he never would have accepted that. Yeah, I'm not endorsing the New World Translation. The reason I would say have them read that out of their translation is because then you take the translation issue off the table. You have a clear reference to Jesus being God, and it's even in your translation. And the reason I say give them the gospel first is because when you do that, oftentimes they want to leave afterwards, and you want them to have the gospel before they leave. So give them the gospel first. But yes, you are right. The New World Translation has a lot of problems. Making himself equal to God, we're going to look at some of those because one of them is in John 8:58. And that's actually what the Pharisees say to him. You are making yourself out to be God. So, the disciples affirm that he's God. Matthew fourteen thirty-three. and those who were in the boat worshiped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. And here we have this reference to him being the son of God, and it's connected to worship. And once again, if Jesus is not God, why did he accept their worship? Why is there not a firm rebuke? Could you imagine one of the prophets of the Old Testament accepting worship? I think you would call them false prophets at that point. They don't accept worship. Angels won't accept worship. For Jesus here to accept worship is for him to affirm that he is God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, this little phrase, this Greek phrase, was used to translate Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning. Every Jew of Jesus' day would have recognized this is a reference back to creation. Was Let's get a little geeky here. Was is a perfect tense. That is to say, it's describing action that was completed in the past with ongoing results. So look at another way. Jesus was existing before the creation. It describes his eternality. And the word was with God. That phrase there, with God, describes two people in a face-to-face relationship. You can't have this kind of relationship by yourself, even if you stare in the mirror. This describes two people. So you have the word who is eternal, and you have God. And they're in communion with each other. And the word was God. And this is where the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons say, no, no, it should be a, the word was a God. And that's just really bad Greek. I think it was Leon Morris who said, how else would you say Jesus is God than what he said here? There's no clearer statement of the divinity of Christ than that phrase, and the word was God. And again, that verb describes what he has always been. Colossians 1, verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. If you want to see the invisible God, you look to Jesus and you will see God. Colossians 2, 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Hebrews 1, 3, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. So not only does he have the same nature, but he, here it's describing him doing the work of God, upholding all things by his power. You could not say that about a human being, a mere human being. Let me say it that way: Jesus is human. Romans nine, verse five. Who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. You can take that little phrase, God bless forever, and translate it another way. The eternally blessed God. Peter referred to Jesus as God, 2 Peter 1:1. 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Clear statements. Jesus is God. The writer of the Hebrews also calls Jesus God. In Hebrews 1.8, he quotes Psalm 45. Why don't you see this? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. He's quoting the psalmist. Anybody know who Psalm 45 is talking about? It's talking about Elohim. You know, the same Elohim we saw in Genesis 1-1, who created the universe? That's who it's talking about. When it says, your throne, O God, it's saying Elohim. And it applies Elohim to Jesus. But of the Son, he says, and he calls the Son Elohim. I think this is NASB. I didn't go through and update my slides for the LSB. But it's not just that the New Testament calls him Elohim. The New Testament also relates Jesus to being Yahweh. Psalm 102 is quoted in the New Testament by the writer of the Hebrews. I'm going to read the opening part of Psalm 102 because I want you to see who it's addressed to. Psalm 102, verse 1. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let my cry for help come to you. O Lord, here, notice it's all caps. This is the name Yahweh. Psalm 102 is addressed to Yahweh. It is a prayer to Yahweh. Let's go down to verse 25. Of old, you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Who is this speaking to? Yahweh. Then you go into Hebrews 1. Hebrews 1, verse 10. Notice what's in yellow. Hebrews 1, verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. He's quoting Psalm 102, verse 25, which is said to who? It's said to Yahweh, and now he ascribes this to Jesus, to the Son. The writer of the Hebrews calls Jesus Yahweh. It's not capitalized, because here this is from the Greek, and so the word there is kurios, not Yahweh. They capitalize it in your English Bible, they capitalize Lord there, just so you understand that there's a Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai, and then there's the name of God, and they're both translated as Lord in some translations. And so they capitalize them in the Old Testament so you can tell the difference between the two. But here, this is describing Jesus as being Yahweh. Jesus himself, John 9, Jesus heard that they had put him out and finding him. He said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believed And he worshipped him. Again, why would you accept worship if you're not God? Jesus claimed to be God. John 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. To say that you are one with God is to claim that you are God. And that's not my opinion. That's actually what the people said to him when he said this. John 10, verse 30 and 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered, I show you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? Here's their answer. The Jews answered him, for a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. They understood he was claiming to be God. This same thing happens. John 8, verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am Now, Abraham lived several thousand years before the incarnation. There's no way a 31, 32-year-old man could have been alive when Abraham was around. Unless he was eternal. And once again, the Jews responded to him, you are making yourself out to be God. And that last little phrase, I am, it's what was used to translate Exodus 3.14, I am that I am to claim to deity. You would never say to your children, before you were, I am. You would never say that because you know what you would be claiming. Jesus claims it without hesitation. John 1 verse 47, Jesus is shown to be omniscient. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. You could say that's omnipresence, but it's very clearly omniscience because he knew Nathaniel before he ever met him. Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus is omnipresent. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. This is not talking about prayer, obviously. This is talking about church discipline. And he says, wherever you are gathered, I am there in your midst. And this is talking about he is especially present when the church exercises church discipline. Jesus is also described as being immutable. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Only God is immutable. We are not immutable. He's also described as being omnipotent, to have all power, and he's able to do things that only God can do. Uh, Luke 7, verse 14, And he came up and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Who else could raise the dead? Nobody. 1 John uh, 3, verse 5, he's described as being holy. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Roman Catholics will try to tell you that Mary is sinless, that she never sinned in her life. That's making her out to be God. Jesus is the only human being that has ever lived that was without sin. Hebrews 7 verses 26 through 27 describe the same thing. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. If Jesus had sinned a single time, his sacrifice would not have been sufficient for you. It would have been for his own sin. But because he is sinless, because he is perfect, His sacrifice is sufficient to cover your sin. So, Jesus is described as God. Jesus claims to be God. He exercised the rights and the privileges of God. He's given the attributes of God, and he does the works of God. Are we going to say he's anything other than God? And how many gods are there? Just one. Last one. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. He is described as being God. First uh, Corinthians 3, verse 16. Do you not know that, there, that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? According to this verse, why are you a temple of God? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And there the Spirit is described as being God. And because He is inside of you, you are the temple of God. Second Corinthians 3, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit and again we have this term kurios being applied to the spirit acts 5 you guys know this one acts 5 verse 3 and 4 but peter said Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land remember Ananias and Sapphira came and they were they sold some land and they said well, here's all the money from the land and they lied and he says, Here, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. You didn't lie to a person into this verse. You have not lied to men, but to God. To lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie to God. Acts five, verse nine. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who are buried, who buried your husband at the door, they will carry you out. And again, that reference, the Lord there, is another way of saying God. Same idea as in Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. Anybody know who said that? This is Jesus speaking here in Luke. Who else would anoint him to preach? The Spirit of the Lord. That's God. The Spirit is also given the attributes of God. He's described as being holy. Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He's described as being eternal. Hebrews 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? He's described as being omniscient. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 10. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now just take this from a different angle. If I knew all the thoughts of God, how much would I know? Everything. The Spirit knows all the thoughts of God. That means the Spirit is omniscient. He knows everything. The Spirit is omnipotent. Romans 15:19 describes powers, signs and wonders. And those works are done by the Spirit. The Spirit exercises the rights and privileges of God. That is to say, he should be worshipped and not insulted. That's the idea here in Hebrews 10, verse 29. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. He should have been worshipping the Spirit, not insulting the Spirit. And the Spirit also has the right to issue commands. Acts 8, verse 29, then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. The Spirit also performs the works of God. That is, He resurrects people. Romans 8, verse 11, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So the Spirit is also involved in resurrection. The Spirit was involved in creation. Genesis 1, verse 2, The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Only God can be involved in creation. The Spirit is described as God. He has the prerogatives of God. He does the work of God. He has the attributes of God. Can you come to any other conclusion than to say the Spirit is God? And we've seen the same thing with the Father and the Son. People claim that the Spirit is just an active force, and that's where you would have to look at Ananias and Sapphira lied to who? Okay, more specifically, the Holy Spirit. Can I lie to an active force? I can't lie to gravity. Gravity is an active force, right? It's impersonal, but I can't lie to gravity. I can't lie to the pulpit. You can only lie to a person. Does that make sense? Right. And so in the class that's online, I go through discussing how we know these are persons. And one of them is they self-identify as a person. They use personal pronouns like I, me, mine, they speak to one another, and they speak to the other one. They speak, Jesus speaks to the Father as though he is separate from him. The Father speaks to Jesus as though Jesus is in some sense separate. I'm not dividing the Trinity here, but yeah, they speak to each other with pronouns. And so we would have to say these are more than just forces, because a force does not speak. It doesn't get offended. It doesn't grieve. It doesn't rejoice. It doesn't do any of that. That's a good, that's a good argument. A force cannot be grieved. And if they're going to say the Spirit is a force, then how is the force being grieved? Do you grieve gravity? No, that's, that's silly. Quick review. How many gods are there? One. And that one God is described as plural unity. There are three persons described in the unity. Each one is said to be God. Each one performs the works of God. Each one exercises the rights of God. Do you see the Trinity? Is the Trinity biblical? Absolutely. Okay, let me close in prayer, and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that uh, you have given us a clear revelation of who you are and what you are, uh, that we can go into Scripture and see very clearly that uh, you are one God in three persons, that you are triune, that you are unlike anything in this creation, and you are above all of creation. And we just ask that you would help us to wrap our minds around what parts of that we can understand, that uh, it would lead us to greater heights of worship as we realize that you are so much different, that you are majestically holy, separate and distinct from your creation. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.